Hello once again and welcome to episode 38 of the Film 89 podcast. By now you should all know me, my name is Sky and I'm one of the editors over at film89.co.uk and joining me tonight is my Film 89 brother in arms, it is of course Mr Steve Amos. Steve, welcome back. Oh, thank you, it's been a while, isn't it again? It has, well, you were last on with me when we had Bill Scurry on as a guest doing Chinatown. Yes, Chinatown, Chinatown yes, and, the, and the film noir special and now of course we are heading into November. <laughs> we are, yes. We are. Yeah. And Steve, I think if Film 89 had a resident bookworm and expert on the author Stephen King, is it safe to say that would be you? I do like to read, and I have read quite a few of them. I haven't read them all yet. There's still a while to go, and I've been rereading a lot in the last couple of years. But yeah, I you know I do like a bit of Stephen King. I think it's safe to say that your consumption of books is probably more than the sum total of the core Film Eighty Nine crew put together. I managed to do, I think it was 53 books last year. 53 books last year. Yeah. I, I probably did three books if I... I'm on about 38 so far this year. I think. Wow, that's good going. Which puts us in good stead tonight because we are, as you all know now, if you've read the episode description, going to be discussing in depth Stanley Kubrick's film adaptation from 1980 of the 1977 Stephen King novel, The Shining. And we are also going to be reviewing the 2019 sequel by director Mike Flanagan, Doctor Sleep, which is also based on a 2013 novel by Stephen King, which is a sequel to his 1977 novel. So, Steve, when did you first come into contact with The Shining, be it film or book? What came first for you? Um, probably the film, although I can't remember when. It's one of those films that's always been with me. I know I watched it way too young. It's always been with you. <laughs> that's always been. Um, I, I was probably too young when I first uh, saw it, and I can't remember when it was I, I know that I read the book then about two or three years later and I also know that I was probably too young to understand the implications of, of the book and sorry of, of the film mm. because the book is quite straightforward in, um, in in its themes and what it's trying to say the film not so and it's very very different to the book because you're going to be kind of like a spiritual guide tonight Steve for me because I have read neither King's original 77 book The Shining nor have I read the 2013 book of Doctor Sleep so you know if you could take us through any differences that come up between uh, both film and book versions um, I think my own, in fact, I think we discussed it on the, the recent uh, horror special we had with uh, John Arminio and J. Blake Fischera. Our favourite five segment, that episode was favourite five horror films, which kind of expanded into a kind of episode uh, in and amongst itself. 
The Shining was certainly one of my picks. You know, I, until I recently rewatched it this Halloween uh, in prep for this episode, I hadn't seen The Shining for about 15 years. And before that, I think I'd probably first seen it in the maybe early to mid 90s. It definitely left its mark on me. And as I said in that episode, I've got a bit of a weakness. And I don't mean as in a fondness, but certainly anything supernatural does tend to get at me. Um, I'm a bit of a bit of a big scaredy cat when it comes to anything to do with ghosts or evil spirits or, or demons or anything like that. Yeah, it, it definitely left this mark. I'm also a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick. I think he is undoubtedly one of the uh, single greatest directing talents we have ever seen. I would definitely hold The Shining up as one of his best films, which is really saying something when you consider, you know, this is the guy that brought us 2001, you know, A Clockwork Orange, you know, Full Metal Jacket. He is just an absolutely remarkable director. Uh, unfortunately, one, I think that, you know, we lost at too young an age. I would love to have seen, you know, Stanley Kubrick, you know, make films into, into this millennium. Would he have, though? It was 12 years. It was, yeah. It was yeah, It was 12 years between uh, Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide yeah, Shut. Yeah, so yeah. He, might, he might not have made another one, we never know. I know yeah. he was working on AI, wasn't he? He that was, yeah. That would have yeah. been interesting, and that, it would have been a very different film. Obviously, he died in 1999, and then uh, Steven Spielberg took over uh, and finished off AI um, in his absence. Uh, so just take us through briefly, Steve, what you know the, the story uh, of uh, King's original 1977 book, The Shining, is. In the original version, and this is something that is very different to the book, um, to the film. In the book, Jack Torrance is a man who's got issues. He's an alcoholic. He uh, has hurt his um, son in the past, um, which is mentioned in the um, film very, very briefly. But he's a good man. He's a man who wants to make a difference. He's a man who wants to make amends. Then he goes to the, the Overlook Hotel and there's the, the haunt in the hotel. The hotel wants the boy and they use him and Jack's weaknesses to get to the boy. So in that respect, it's quite different from the film because where there's a film, is Jack a good man? Is he a bad? Mm. We don't know. Yeah, It's more open to interpretation. Having not read the book, but having, you know, skirted around, you know, some of the main differences between the book and the film, it's, it's apparent that, you know, young Danny Torrance's psychic abilities, which are referred to as, as an ability called the Shining, is, is it true, Steve, that that's more prominent in the book and it's something that kind of takes a bit more of a, of a back foot in the, the actual film? Yeah, I think so, because in the film, it's almost as if the Shining is almost unrelated to the story of Jack and the mm. hotel. This is almost two different stories running together. Yeah. In the um, book, and this is something which is played on in Doctor Sleep, it's the hotel wants and feeds off the Shining. And that's why he wants Danny, because he has so much of this power. So it, it's, it's like the building itself is a shining vampire a couple of other differences for example the haunting is um, there's things where the hedges outside come alive yeah there's there's uh, like topiary creatures like yes, uh, yeah. you know bushes which are sort of shaped into the form of creatures and is it right that they actually come to life they in do the they, they do when they attack and it's also the fire hoses inside come out and attack like snakes so uh, i suppose that's not something they could have done especially back in 1979-80 um they could do it now with cg but i don't think it would be nice convincing yeah yeah um you know, my understanding is that kubrick wanted to sort of move away from you know any sort of complex visual effects because I, I, I think there's very little in the way of actual special effects in the shining no just the blood or something yeah like well the, yeah the blood which is actually just a you know a, a physical effect in itself and and one kind of shot that we'll come to later is the the sort of extremely high top-down overhead shot of the maze which i understand is a composite shot 
That's a fantastic shot. It is, yeah, agreed, agreed. And that is a Stanley Kubrick shot because it, it fits his sensibility, his sense of um, structure within the yeah. frame perfectly. Now, well, let's talk about that shot now then. The actual maze in the film, was that Kubrick's replacement for the sort of topiary garden in the book? I believe the maze is in the book. It's been a long, long time since I've read mm. the book, and it's not something that stands out at all, so I would say no. But that, that shot we're talking about, it's quite early on in the film. Um, it's it's after, you know, the, the, the Torrance family have actually got to the Overlook Hotel. It's an extremely high top-down shot of the entire maze, and you can see these two tiny specks, which are, are, are Danny and Wendy actually moving in the centre part of the maze, but they clearly do look as if they're people, as opposed to, you know, sort of animated little, you know, facsimiles of people apparently what Kubrick did was he went to an apartment block and went to the sort of a topmost apartment and looked down on what looked to be just like a, a plain parking lot he then got the crew to build the center portion of the maze in which the actual actors or stand-ins could walk and then he sort of did a slow zoom in on that maze then actually composited out the center part of that image removing the rest of the car park and then perfectly composited it into a model shot of the outer portion of the maze. So you've got this perfect zoom in on what looks to be the entirety of the maze when the actual only real bit is a sort of the middle rectangular portion. And it is absolutely seamless. I've watched it, I think, three times in the last few days, that shot. You cannot tell the difference. It is just one of those shots that is so inexplicably perfect that you just think, yeah, he must have literally shot it from a helicopter, Mm. which... Couldn't have been practical because the actual camera positioning is completely still apart from that slow zoom in. With Kubrick, obviously you, you mentioned what you know the central themes of the book were there. I think the central themes of the film for Kubrick, and bearing in mind he'd bought the rights to the book, but he'd made sure that he actually reserved the right to make whatever changes he wanted to. Now I think this is something we'll come to later. This has been the cause of I think much consternation between Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick. Because it's no secret that Stephen King does not like this particular adaptation of his book. No, he doesn't. But I, I don't think it's so much the changes that were made generally to the structure of the story, because thinking as many as said many times, you know, if somebody buys the rights to one of his books, hmm. it's up to them to do it. You know, it, there's no secret that um, Stephen King was a alcoholic. He was a, a drug addict, and it would have been around this time. You mean famously, he said he can't actually remember writing Cujo, <laughs> and um, so to change the main character from somebody is a good man trying his best, who's trying to um, make amends and then turn him into somebody who is, seems to be mad from the very beginning, mm. I think that you know really, really grated in him. It's, it's quite clear from the off that you know the central theme for Kubrick was one that this was a story of a family gradually going insane together, in particular of Jack Torrance uh, kind of slowly going insane. But it doesn't appear from the start he's a particularly wholesome guy. And Kubrick's version is kind of permeated by the, the sense of this being all about a father's hatred of his family and from that an ongoing kind of father-son conflict between Jack and his his son Danny which I think for me is one of the most unsettling aspects of of Kubrick's vision. It is yes and it's one of the things that I've got maybe against the film because you don't actually get any scenes between Jack and Danny which are father-son love relationship at all in the film. There's one scene where they are together in the room Mm. uh, but that's the scene where Danny has already had visions that of what is going to happen, yeah. and he turns to his father and says, "You won't hurt us, will you?" 
Yeah. And of course, by then, we already know that the relationship is breaking down. Yeah, I agree. There doesn't even seem to be that warm a relationship between them from the start. No. I think the first scene we see, you know, between or involving Danny any, uh, having any kind of interaction with his father is in the yellow VW when they're actually driving to the Overlook yeah. Hotel. You can just see from the off that Jack hasn't got much patience for and tolerance of his son. And I think, yeah, I, I do agree, Steve. That's one thing the Kubrick's version does lack that I think it could benefit from is that you don't see the kind of slow and uncomfortable degradation of this father-son relationship. It seems to me as if it's kind of damaged from the off. But then flipping that on his head, if you were to see, um, and this is all down to personal interpretation, but for me, the Overlook Hotel being built on, as they say, an Indian burial ground is kind of like this sort of well for lost souls and, and, and a sort of entity that kind of wants to seduce and, and ensnare certain people. Again, you know, this could be something that, that differs from the intentions that, that King had in the book, but I think maybe Kubrick's intention was that by making Jack's character unwholesome from the start, that makes him kind of more susceptible to being seduced by the kind of underlying evil of the Overlook Hotel, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's something that, um, after we watched Doctor Sleep yesterday, something you said about how the film is almost as if Jack resents his family for holding him back. He wants to be a, a writer, yeah. and you know he, he obviously hasn't got any success whatsoever, and so maybe he resents his family, whereas in the book, I, you know, that's not an issue. I don't. I, he is trying to make amends. You know, I wish I'd heard that comment before I'd seen the film again this week because I might have looked at it in a different light. Yeah, again, I think one of the beauties of Kubrick's film and all of Kubrick's films, I think, to a degree, is that they're so meticulously crafted with so many different layers and ways of looking at them. My most recent rewatching of this film, being like 15 years apart from the last time I saw it, I, I picked out so many new technical things which you know having a different head on my shoulders to the one I did 15 years ago kind of maybe being more attuned to the filmmaking craft I did watch it from a different standpoint and and some of the things I've noticed both in terms of Kubrick's flawless technical prowess it is hands down one of those films where you know you and I have sat down and we've done an audio commentary on Casablanca when when you sat there watching a film and talking about it it gives a kind of added dimension from you know for you as a person talking about that film like I can only imagine that if you and I now were to sit down and talk about The Shining for, you know, again, depending on which version you, you, you watch, because there are two versions. There's the original American cut, which is 144 minutes. Then there's the international cut, which is the version which was uh, shown in the UK, which is 119 minutes. So there's actually 25 minutes difference between the two cuts. You know, they're, they're both remarkable films. But for me personally now, having only for the first time, like two days ago, seen the extended American version, that is for me now my preferred version. But I would happily, and I think quite easily, be able to sit down and, and talk about that film whilst watching it. But I think the majority of that would just be me gushing over just the, the absolute meticulous quality of, of Kubrick's shot composition, the incredible camera work, of which a great deal of that was done with Steadicam, with um, you know the, the guy who invented the Steadicam, Garrett Brown, who the main camera operator on The Shining. You know, from a technical point of view, Steve, would you agree that The Shining is pretty much nigh flawless? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Kubrick is one of these almost singular visions. You know, in all his films, he ha he seems to approach everything in a very similar way. He's in that in that respect, he's somebody like Osu. In the way that he used to, you know, when he made um, Tokyo Story or uh, Autumn Afternoon, or you could tell it's it's an Osu film, and the same now with um, Wes Anderson, you can tell yeah. a Wes Anderson film. Well, Kubrick was like that, and you can sit back and admire not just the technique but the 
as I said, the construction of the image inside the frame. There's a video which I, I've, I've sent to you, uh, which um, takes little shots from many of his films and puts them all together. And you can see that construction in every single film. Shots here from, you know, um, Full Metal Jacket to 2001 to uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. I often wonder, did he have something on the monitor to say, okay, this is the yeah. absolute centre of these uh, you know, lines down the, each side to say, but I want something here, because it seems flawless. We, you know, we've seen in so many behind-the-scenes images and bits of footage of Kubrick kind of carrying around that sort of director's viewfinder. Now, is it possible you know, that he had stenciled into that viewfinder, that frame? Because it does seem that, with the exception of certainly Spartacus, which was a film that was never really his from the start, you know, he took over after Anthony Mann was fired. Kubrick's gone on record to say that he doesn't really see that as his film. And, and that had to adhere to a certain Hollywood did, yeah. standard as well. Yeah. But, um, you know. So many of Kubrick's films were shot in a similar aspect ratio. Now, The Shining was shot in the, the much more square 1.66 to 1 ratio. Now, you know, the version that we've got now on Blu-ray has been slightly cropped under 1.78, which is the standard widescreen ratio. Kubrick was extremely concerned about like all matters of visual symmetry. And, and the video you mentioned, which you can find on YouTube, is called Kubrick's One Point Perspective. Whereas so many points in almost every frame within, certainly The Shining, and within a lot of his other films, there's always a centre object, be that a physical object or, or a character. It, it's almost as if you're looking down a long corridor, and the walls of the corridor and the floor, the ceiling of the corridor, all go off into this sort of distant perspective... And then you've got a central object in in the middle, and everything is framed around that. And there's frames within the frame. Yeah, free, exactly. Yeah, free, and it's just meticulous arrangement and placing of objects and people within that frame. There's something that once you've had your eyes open to it, you just see it in so many of his films. Like you say, that that brilliant video, you know, Kubrick's One Point Perspective, is literally about less than two minutes long. Mm-hmm. Yet it showcases so much of the same kind of shot composition across all of Kubrick's films or, or many of Kubrick's films. And it seems to be almost as if it was instinctual because there's a if you have a look at the behind the scenes footage um, filmed by Vivian Kubrick his daughter mm. so yeah so there's a scene in there where um, where Jack is inside the pantry and Wendy's locked him in and they talk him through um, the door and it's the scene where he says you know you should check the the radio and everything because you're going to have this yeah. bit of a surprise for you and in that scene you can see in the behind the scenes footage you can see Kubrick looking at it thinking okay how should I film this mm. and he says I'll try this. And he gets down on the floor with his little viewfinder yeah. thing and he looks up and he says to Jack, is there any way you can look down when you say yeah. these words? So it's almost as if he's you know, he's improvising and yet it's still that singular vision. It's, it's like a worm's eye view, isn't it? It is. And I think that's the only time, if I'm right, in the film that we see that p- particular sort of from the ground a perspective. Mm-hmm. But it's always within the same sort of shot composition. And, yes. and the, you know, the central part of that particular image is... Jack Torrance's his head is the actual centre of the image mm. and then you've got the door and, and everything else around that taking a similar role to you know th- th- I think one of the best shots that exemplifies it is you've got the image in that very distinctive red and white bathroom oh, in the yes, Overlook yes. Hotel and you've got got Jack and Grady as the sort of central object in the middle and then you've got on the left and right sides, you've got the urinals on the left and the row of sinks on the right. And they're all kind of going off into the distance again, kind of in this sort of same perspective. Again, please go on YouTube and watch the, the Kubrick's One Point Perspective video. And you'll get exactly um, the point we're trying to make. It is obviously on, on an audio only medium like a podcast is very difficult to illustrate. 
but once you've had your kind of eyes open to that, you just see it everywhere. Mm, you do. Uh, that scene in the bathroom as well was actually, uh, if I remember correctly, they, they were going to film that conversation in the hall with everybody there, yeah. but it was taking so long to film because of this, of course, this is Kubrick, that they had to, you know, release mm. everybody. So they built this set spe- specifically yeah. for this conversation. In relation to his approach to telling a story on film, bearing in mind how much of a visual director Stanley Kubrick is, because you could argue that when he's paying so much effort to constructing these perfectly staged shots, you know how much of his attention then is going on the character, on the story. But what Kubrick always said is, "Real is good, interesting is better." And I think from you know from that point of view, that sort of exemplifies a lot of his work. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Going on to the specifics of the making of the film, the film opens with just these unforgettable helicopter shots of... Is it, is it Colorado? Is it, is it a sort of... Um, is it, based. You know, these exteriors of... And I think the Overlook Hotel, the actual real hotel it's based on, is the... Um, it's in Oregon. It's the, the Timberline Lodge, which played the exterior, which was in the wide shots only. And then the actual close-up exterior shots were actually shot in the UK, where they built like a kind of artificial facade of the hotel. The, those opening shots clearly shot from a helicopter. Yeah, it was the same cameraman who did um, the Tower Inferno. Wow, you know th- those shots are just absolutely remarkable. And is you get this almost sort of. I'm not sure what lens you know was used to shoot that, but you almost get a sort of distortion you of do, the landscape. Yeah. yeah, as if it's slightly too wide. Yes, yeah. and and it again it just adds this kind of magical quality. Then you've got that coupled with Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkins' incredible score from from the get go. Kubrick effortlessly sets up this kind of ominous sense of impending dread, and this is before you even know anything that's going on. One of those first notes. Yeah. so deep so resonant yeah and they don't fit the landscape whatsoever you know straight mm. away there's something wrong here i think that stretch of road it was called the go into the sun highway that was in glacier national park where these kind of mount, winding mountain roads were filmed and apparently that was the second time that they tried to achieve that footage because the first time when they shot in colorado it was deemed too visually dull so kubrick being a perfectionist that he is, sent him away and said, no, come back with something different. In which case, I think most of the time, he actually got in the damn helicopter himself and filmed it himself. Like we say, by the camera movement, you, you can't, I don't think you can put, you know, a finer point on how important the, the steady cam operator Garrett Brown was to this film. Oh, absolutely. Some of the shots, especially with Danny going through the, on his little tricycle, going through the corridors, the sound as it goes across the floor and then the carpet and, and that, the that was kind of like a happy accident wasn't it with the sound oh it's fantastic because I think they that was actually the production audio that they captured of this little three wheel trike with the plastic wheels going over the wooden floor then over the carpet making the noise dull then it'd be the more loud noise going over the floor you know I, I think didn't they sit down one day looking at the dailies and it was just like we need Stanley, that. we need that. That's yeah. the sound you've got there. As, as we'll come to, again, being the consummate perfectionist that he is renowned for being, Kubrick went way over schedule um, filming The Shining. He did, he did. Uh, he he took so many takes to do things. He They would build a set and then he would turn up and say, no, that's not good enough. In fact, in the ballroom, originally it was a different colour and he went in and he said, how about gold? And so the production designer had to get hundreds and hundreds of tiles and he painted themselves and then stuck them up everywhere to turn it gold. The the, the big ballroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is, is there's so much detail in it. It, it. You wouldn't swear that it is on a stage at yeah. all. Absolutely. It's, I think it was, wasn't it shot at Boreham Wood? Yeah. yeah. Elstree, is it? Elstree, yeah. yeah. And you talk about Kubrick filming multiple takes. Now, depending on whose testimony you choose to believe, just to sort of give an example 
of of the the lengths that Kubrick was willing to go and the sort of distance he was willing to push his actors. It's been reported that Kubrick did between 88 and 148 takes of the seven-minute scene between Scatman Crothers' character of Halloran and Danny when they're having this sit-down discussion in the Overlook discussing uh, Danny's psychic abilities. 148 takes. Yeah, but that was actually beaten, wasn't it, on the, the scene on the stairs between Wendy and Jack when he's coming up the stairs, yeah. you know, light to my life. Wasn't that, I think that was 179 takes. No. But that was for a very different that, reason. Yeah, that was, yeah, exactly. And right or wrong. Wrong. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> certainly wrong. But you can see to a degree that Kubrick was trying to push both Shelley Duvall, who I think gives an absolutely amazing performance. She does. She yes. does. I don't think she gets the credit she deserves. She didn't. She was nominated for a Raspberry Award that year. Exactly. As was the film. Which just goes to show that award season should be set 10 years after the year that they're looking should, at. Yeah. Because it's only, I think, with hindsight, you can look back at a film and, and, and see you know, that in a cold light of day how good or how bad that film is. And certainly in terms of The Shining, yeah. The Raspberry Award, come on, really? And her performance, where, and I think it's, it's been, you know, a lot of the people who were involved in the making of The Shining, including Garrett Brown himself, have said that he observed Kubrick treating Shelley Duvall in quite a cold manner. If you have a look at the documentary filmed by Vivian Kubrick, yeah. you can see him dismissing her all the time. Mm-hmm. He is, he's calling her names, he's telling her that, uh, that she's a terrible actress. Um, at one point she says about some hair is falling out because of the scene when she's trying to get through the little um, window and he just dismisses it and he actually tells somebody don't have sympathy with her and yet at the same time with Jack Nicholson he was warm and he was friendly and they were talking all the time it's not a particularly nice way to to treat your actors or your actresses but I think what he wanted was he wanted Wendy Torrance to always be on edge and then towards the latter half of the film I think pretty much Kubrick shot most of this film in sequence which is extremely rare for a director to do it, it isn't particularly the easiest way when you take into account different locations, but I think one of the benefits that he had with this film is it takes place pretty much in that one location. So the kind of management of the, the shooting schedule is far easier to do as opposed to, you know, as we'll come to a film which is a lot more, not so much epic in scope, but it's more of a globe-trotting film in the sequel where we kind of travel across America, don't mm-hmm. we? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, he shot most of the film in, in, in sequence, but yeah, that scene on the stairs, which is a far more intense scene, you can understand why that would require a lot of takes, certainly not 170-odd takes, but why, for a simple seven-minute dialogue scene between two characters, it's not a particularly intense scene, why did he take so long to, to, to shoot that? Yeah, and the take they probably you know use at the end was probably take ten. Mm. You know who knows. Garrett Brown, who has been quite vocal and you know about his experience with the film, not anywhere in any negative way. I think he he saw it as an incredibly positive um, I think experience. He's very proud of it. He is, yeah, yeah and, and he so he should be. be. Yeah. As the schedule was going over and over and approaching the six month mark, he turned to Kubrick and said. Look, Stanley, you've only got me for six months because at that point I've got to leave because I've got to go and fly halfway across the country because I'm actually scheduled to film Rocky 2. Because I think it's a bit of a Rocky 2 link here, isn't it? Garrett Brown goes away, films the entire film of Rocky 2. Then by the time he comes back, The Shining is still being filmed. Fortunately, before he left, he trained up another steady cam operator, Ray Andrew, to fill in for him. But he actually managed to come back and ended up shooting, even though he had a considerable time off to shoot another film in his entirety, he still ended up shooting two-thirds of Kubrick's film. Wow. It just goes to show that Kubrick being so meticulous, it did have a knock-on effect. It didn't even just aff- affect Warner Brothers and, and this particular film. Because you had two other films which wanted to use the studios, one of which happened to be The Empire Strikes Back, which was shooting in 1979. You know, they wanted to get on those sound stages and, and, and build and then shoot on interiors. 
that was a film that came out the same year as The Shining. One of the most incredible things then, which I'd find even harder to believe, is that not only did they have a knock-on effect on The Empire Strikes Back, but Steven Spielberg was filming Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1980, but still couldn't get on the sound stages because Kubrick was there still filming The Shining. So he was actually delaying the filming of two you know, huge blockbusters, one which would come out in the same year as The Shining, but the other one that wasn't even scheduled to come out until 1981. Exactly, and I, and I know that um, Spielberg and... Lucas were frequent visitors to the set. Mm. I wonder if that was just friendly or if it was just to give him a nudge. Yeah, yeah, kind of, oh, hi, Stanley, what are you doing there? <laughs> yeah. When are you going to pull your finger out of your ass? We could be here all night talking about, you know, the you know the, the, the great kind of, of shots, but what are your particular favourite moments from The Shining, from a kind of technical point of view? I, I suppose it's, first of all, it's this um, shot we've already mentioned mm. in the, the steady cam following the little tricycle because that is is the sound on that. I mean, a lot of people talk about Kubrick's visual style, but the sound on that is just if an happy accident. Yeah. Fantastic, wonderful. And I, and I also like the ending, again, another steady cam as they are going through the maze. And when you see, again, you know, referring back to that Vivian uh, Kubrick documentary, which you should see, you know, I mean, it's a fantastic yeah. little piece. You, you can see them walking through, you know, the backstages of the the stage and then turn around and they're in this dark maze with snow everywhere. Yeah. To see them filming that is just, oh, it's, it's a fantastic shot. It's like the maze, you, you don't crash in the maze at all, but it, no. it's completely artificial. It is, yeah. And it's, uh, you, this, what you can see, they've got a map of the maze mm. and it's only a part of it that they filmed. Yeah. You, can, you can say, well, okay, we're going to go down this way, mm. but then we're going to go around here. Yeah, because I think it was basically kind of plywood boxes that had some kind of foliage could have layered on top of it, uh, you know, in the scenes in the winter when it's snowing, it was actually kind of some sort of spray on salt, you know, artificial snow. But then on top of that, you know, every couple of uh, meters, you had these kind of blazing hot white lights that form part of the maze to illuminate it at night. And apparently the whole thing was just a huge fire hazard. And if it had gone up when they were filming in the maze, even though they didn't build a maze in its entirety, it was still big enough that if they got trapped in it, then there was every chance that they would have all perished. Oh, wow. But then one of the reasons, of course, why it was so the schedule was you know so long is because Stanley Kubrick was also rewriting it all the time. Yeah, and there was a on um, a, a joke that they uh, often said um, behind the st- scenes about how he would write something and then the next day he would rewrite it on a different color paper, and then another one on the new paper. So they, when they were all together, they all he, knew they were reading from the same one because the paper was the same. So color. he knew that. And yeah. his mother turned up one day and said, "You know why why have you got all these colors?" And they were saying, "Oh, it's because." Every time that Stanley rewrites it, and it could have you know five or six different colours yeah. for the same scene. One of my favourite shots, and it's one of the most iconic from the film, is the the camera following the swinging of the axe towards the end, oh, where yes, yes. Jack is obviously now completely gone batshit crazy and he's trying to kill his family. As Jack Nicholson, you know, he's facing right to frame, and as he swings the axe back. The camera pans sideways back with him and then forward as he hits the door. But as he does it, ever so slightly, and this is something I never noticed before, you get almost like a tiny bit of barely perceptible camera wobble as the axe hits the door. Now, unless this was actually done unintentionally as the camera, uh, sorry, as the axe hit the door, maybe if the camera was on some sort of fixed rigging that was in contact with the rest of the set, I don't know. But there's definitely a perceptible little shake as the axe hits the door. And it's just, it's just one of those shots that just takes my breath away every time. It is just absolutely remarkable. And it's so iconic, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. And the whole, you know, here's Johnny thing. Yeah. Not a word I like to throw around because it is, I kind of think, overused, but my God. You've only got to go back to the episode we did early on in, you know, the life of this podcast where you, Jim Cotton and I, reviewed Ready Player One 
by far and away, I think our favourite moment in that film was the the the, the Shining recreation. Absolutely, yeah. Because it is such an iconic film, and I think Spielberg, who clearly has shown that Kubrick was hugely influential on him, you know, a, a close friend and one of his favourite directors, obviously so much so that he, he finished off his last film, AI. Talking about directors, though, because Martin Scorsese was a fan of The Shining from the very beginning. Right. And in Cape Fear, they're sitting in the, when they're in the cinema, and of course uh, Max in the cinema is there with his soap laughing and smoking a cigarette they watching problem child on the screen and it's the scene where the father comes and goes to the door and says here's daddy you know very tenuous later yeah. but you can see that uh, i think that was martin scorsese having a bit of fun yeah and also acknowledging that film right we, we mentioned the performance of shelly deval we've spoken about jack nicholson on our chinatown episode mm. how in the amazing canon of jack nicholson performances or how aware more importantly, does does his performance as Jack Torrance fit? When you think about it, this when people think about a Jack Nicholson performance, it's The Shining, mm. isn't it? It's or, or maybe is the Joker in um, Batman, and they are very similar roles. Yeah, I suppose for subtlety, you know, you got to go to Chinatown, but The Shining, it, like I say, is such an iconic performance. It's such, you know, when Jack Nicholson, you know, finally passes away, that's the scene that they're going to be showing over and over right. again. That performance. As, as time has gone on in, in the last couple of years, I've I've kind of watched a lot of Jack Nicholson films in chronological order. Look at the films like Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, uh, The Last Detail, Chinatown, which obviously we spoke about a few episodes back. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, bearing in mind the point I'm coming to, and he plays an allegedly crazy person in that film. I think he fell quite comfortably into that, yeah. which is of Eastwick as well. That's right. And going from, the, I think, The Shining onwards, there, there are a few exceptions. Maybe um, his 1982 film, The Border, which is more one of his more subdued performances. I found that as we go on, which kind of peaks in his performance in 1989's Batman as the Joker, he gradually and more comfortably embraces the sort of what you call the crazy side of Jack Nicholson. It's a far more campy performance in Batman, but when it comes to outright crazy, is The Shining peak crazy Jack Nicholson? I think it was it was the the performance that started off the mm. the craziness. Um, he did do others afterwards, which every which just reminded you how good an actor he was. For example, in The Pledge, yeah, because that is such a subdued performance. Yeah, but I think because you're so used to that manic performance that he you mm. know he was doing so many so often that actually made it made performances like the pledge and the crossing guard yeah even better i don't think he ever topped that craziness then from the mm. shining yeah you know you've got definitely you've got then the more subdued performances like jake gitties in, in chinatown yeah but for me you know jack torrance is peak crazy jack nicholson is it easier just to go all out batshit crazy and play a character like that or is it more difficult to sort of rein things in? I don't know, maybe he just enjoyed it so much. Yeah, you know, he, I just he felt comfortable in it. He did. He, he was uh, almost like the elder statesman of, of acting at the time. He'd been in films for two decades yeah. already. And he'd found, you know, is a little niche that um, people were willing to cast him in. Because even in his comedies, he was very much like mm. that. And it does help his characters, because I was thinking in The Departed, even though he's not crazy like that, you can see it there. You can see it. You can see those little bits where he's like doing that weird thing with his tongue, he's pulling yeah. faces. It's almost like as if it's kind of little outtakes that they never meant to go in the film. But that was just him. I think yeah, by that yeah. point, he'd fully embraced the fact that this is who I am. We, we're expecting it. We know yeah. that him so much that we're expecting it, and we know it's there. And that makes it even more real and more um, more terrifying. What do you think, Steve, of young Danny Lloyd and his performance? Oh, as, he's excellent. Yeah. 
he's excellent. There's a great interview with him when um, somebody's asking him, you know, little questions, and he says, "Oh, I was so excited because I wanted to see what uh, my parents are going to buy me from the money." Yeah. I said, "How much are you going to get? Two dollars." <laughs> <laughs> So, no, he, did, he, just, he said maybe $500. He didn't know. He obviously, yeah. you know, he was how old? He's seven, eight years old. He if, didn't, that, yeah. if that, yeah. Uh, it's a great performance considering the stress that people were under, the fact that he's an American, he was uprooted and moved to London mm. for what, a year and a half, mm. which has got to be, you know, it's, it's a very, very strange environment for him. And yet, I think he holds his head up wonderfully. Well, I think it's fortunate that they actually Kubrick chose to shoot most of the film chronologically, because when you've got one of the central characters being a very young boy and you're going to shoot for well over a year, I think you clearly see between you know those opening shots uh, of young Danny in the car with his family, and then the closing shots, he's actually aged visibly on screen. And I think you know that one of the things that clinched the role for him is when in casting sessions he actually came up with a little finger movement and the voice of Tony his imaginary friend himself that was something that was completely constructed by this six year old boy which I just think is you know absolutely remarkable and I think child actors this is something I think which is going to come up again when we talk later on about Doctor Sleep I think child performances in film if, if it's not the right actor for the part or if it's an inexperienced actor or just a child who's just not hasn't got a natural acting talent, they can often come across as, as irritating. They can, yeah. But I don't think for a second there's any of that here. But it's, it's, and it's not just their performance, it's the environment around them. Mm. He had somebody with him all the time yeah. that you know he could play with, he could tutor, everything. You know, he was like a mm. surrogate parent while they were on set. And, of course, um, Stanley Kubrick, who he's not known as a you know a child person at all and yet apparently he was very close to them yeah, as well and uh, and i think that all that combined and, and people often forget mm. because of the stories about shelley duval and because of um, you know uh, everything else that was going on on the set they often forget about the child yeah what about Scatman Crothers as Halloran? He didn't have to do much, did he? Apart from 140-odd takes. Well, he no, he was a friend of Nicholson, and apparently um, he had begged Nicholson to suggest him to Kubrick for a part in the film. Now, his role, if I'm right, was changed considerably from that in the book. In the book, he manages to save Danny and Wendy, whereas in the film, having travelled all the way from Miami, no sooner as he made it to the Overlook, that he get literally gets axed from the film. I know. It's almost as if the part is pointless, but I think that's just a joke. That's, that's Kubrick playing with expectations. Yes, he does, yeah, because you think this is going to be you know, yeah. the, the sort of unexpected hero of the film, you know, the, the man who is like this, called, you know, the way he walks with his bandy legs, he, he, in a way, he's, he's quite an old, frail guy compared mm. to you know, crazy, axe-wielding yeah. Jack Torrance. But obviously, as it turns out, by bringing a second snowcat to the Snowden Hotel after Jack has yeah. sabotaged the first one, he actually still manages to save him by providing Danny and Wendy with a means of escape. He does, yeah. He does. And plus, of course, he's the one who, for a bit of exposition, he's the one who explains what the Shining yeah. is, you know, the fact that he can speak to, to Danny and he knows that his surname is, his, his nickname is Doc. Yeah. Um, so that provides a little bit of explanation for which we're not going to get from the other characters the, the shining is regarded as one of the all-time greatest horrors what for you steve is the most terrifying aspect of kubrick's film uh it's the two twins the twins <laughs> and because the first time you yeah. ever see them you know when there's lots of people around and danny's in this room and they, mm-hmm. they come into the room and then they just i don't i can't remember do they giggle or something and they just walk out and it's almost as if yeah uh, you know they, they, they're children of somebody who actually works in they leave in now Mm. And of course, you see him a bit later again. And of course, obviously, they're the young twin girls of a former caretaker, uh, Grady, who mm. went crazy with an axe. Um, I think in the film, which is set obviously in 1980, isn't it 
the the guy that um, interviews Jack at the very beginning of the film for the job actually says, and he says, look, Jack, I've got to tell you about something that happened a while back. And Full apparently it happened in 1970. So it happened 10 years before Jack gets there. But then, you know, again, this is something that we're going to come to as we sort of wrap things up on The Shining. There's a weird chronology in the film, isn't it? It's like as if the Overlook Hotel and all of its ghostly occupants are all kind of centred around this one point in time. And in, in, as it turns out, I think it's the, the, the 4th of July celebrations of 1921. And irrespective of where, you know, whatever character comes into the snare of this sort of hotel, they always end up back in this time. What is, what is your take, Steve, on... Obviously, I've said mine about what I think the hotel is ultimately. What, what is your take on, on what the central sort of power or evil is about this hotel? Is it the people who have died there or is it the hotel itself? I think it's the hotel itself. Hmm. In the film, they don't mention the Indian burial ground, I don't believe. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brief line in the is film. It, is it? Yeah, whether it's a line that's only in the US cut, I'm not sure. Yeah. But it is literally a brief line of the fact that it was built on an old Indian burial ground. And as soon as the line is mentioned, no no further reference is made to it. Mm. Yeah, well, that's something that people often talk about the Stephen King universe uh, because a lot of his films, a lot of his books are interlinked mm. and in Pet Cemetery, the cemetery is an in old Indian burial ground. This there's this theme that you know goes through all um, a lot of his books, The Shining for example, apart from Doctor Sleep, I would say that his recent novel, The Institute, is a sequel yeah. to Doctor Sleep and to The Shining, maybe to Pet Cemetery, to them all. I, but I, I think that it's it's the building itself, it's haunted we don't know by what, yeah. and that makes it more mysterious. It does. Um, you know, more interesting. And I think that linking this up to Doctor Sleep, which we'll be discussing in a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. especially in the novel, there's definitely a link, and it's the place that's haunted, and it's almost, as, as I said earlier, the building is a shining vampire. Yes. Or the souls in the building, we don't know. That's right. It's, it's like this, this overwhelming force that is trying to collect and, well, kind of possess souls. Mm. For me, I think probably the most terrifying aspect is quite a simple one, really, when you break it down. It's all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Oh, yeah. But by the point at which Wendy finally thumbs through Jack's transcript, having seen that one page of that line on the typewriter typed over repeatedly, and she just sees pages upon pages upon pages of the same line typed, not even in exactly the same fashion. No. It's in... Some of it looks like, if you just glance at it, it's a novel. You know, Wendy's the one that's been... You know, maintaining the upkeep throughout this this winter of the Overlook Hotel, whereas Jack, all he's been doing, apart from throwing a baseball around the hotel, yeah. is typing away, working on his book. But then when we find out the months and months of work has just amounted to hundreds upon hundreds of pages of this same line type up over and over again, it's just absolutely terrifying. Then the reality of the... And this, is, this also bothers me, the fact that poor Margaret Adams, Kubrick's secretary, had to spend hours upon hours, days upon days, typing out. Because it's, it's not like you could do it now. You, you do, you'd use a word processor now. You would, yeah. You would, you know, you copy and paste lines upon lines. It would take several hours don't get me wrong and then you just go back and format it exactly that's right it could all be done in a computer whereas this had to be done back in the days of the good old-fashioned typewriter bear in mind you know Kubrick's secretary she had a day job imagine being Stanley Kubrick's secretary and then at the end of your working day you've got to spend hours upon hours typing out the same line over and over again and yeah for me that that is just one of the most terrifying moments but then you've also got the contents of room 237 why do you think Steve and isn't it room 217 in the book Oh, I don't know. I yeah, don't it know. was it was changed. It, it for whatever reason, 
if you watch the, the documentary Room 237, which is kind of a documentary about the conspiracy theories behind oh, yeah, The Shining. Yeah. Now, I don't buy into a lot of that because I think it's the kind of thing that it's what's called a confirmation bias. You go into something looking for a particular pattern, a particular thing based on who you are and your own beliefs and invariably you're going to find it obviously you've got the conspiracy theories about stanley kubrick having been responsible for shooting the moon landing which (laughs) people say didn't happen and then within the shining kubrick tries to subliminally put across a kind of apology for that and there's there's sort of several references to it then there's also references to by certain people of the holocaust and, and things like that bearing in mind some of the people who are making these kind of statements one of them is a Holocaust writer. He writes about it. And another one who who says that you know Stanley Kubrick called it Room Two Three Seven because the distance between the Earth and the Moon is two hundred and thirty-seven thousand miles. Turns out it's not. It's not. The Moon is on an, in an elliptical orbit around the Earth, and and the distance between the Earth and the Moon varies considerably. And I think the average distance is two hundred thirty-eight thousand miles. Anyway, so for whatever little theory you could come up with about what the true meaning behind the, the shining is it's all open to interpretation and those more kind of i think wild you know, it doesn't make it any less an entertaining documentary but mm. just personally i don't really buy into any of that i certainly don't buy into the fact that kubrick shot these fake moon landings no i, th- I think it, they refer to uh, doesn't danny have a jumper with uh, yeah something to do with the apollo because I, I think know. kubrick wanted danny to be wearing something that looked homemade yes so, you know, later on when it gets all, you know, Wendy finds it with these marks on his neck, he looks all disheveled. It just adds to the whole thing of, yeah, you know, it's all the more upsetting. But I, I say one thing, though, when you say about the difference in the um, room numbers, sometimes I think I get the book and the film, yeah. they become one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because to me, it's 237. If I was to read the book at the moment and finished it and you asked me what room it was, I'd probably say 237 yeah. again. But yeah, as we bring things to close then on The Shining, Steve. How would you sum up this film, the impact it's had on cinema in general and on you as a lover of film? Where does it sit in Steve Amos's sort of um, hierarchy of horror films? Well, as you know, I I do like a little bit of horror now and again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't hold it to the same regard as, for example, The Exorcist, Mm -hmm. which was was at the seven years earlier. Neither do I hold it to the highest, for example, uh, The Innocents, which... It's got a, a similar kind mm. of um, theme about it. It's a woman going into a house. The house is haunted. And, you know, it's about this personality be breaking down. At the same time, you can't escape from the fact that The Shining, and I've used this, uh, I've overused this word today, is so iconic that yeah. you can't escape it. No. Now, anyway, I do have issues with the first half mm. because I don't think that, and I can see why what Stephen King, what issues he had, because it is not a warm film. It's not a warm relationship no. between them. However, you mentioned yesterday about how he resents his family. If I was to watch it again, that might click. Yeah. And that's changed my whole perception of, yeah. of that first half. And I, I am going to have to watch it again. I think that is the beauty of this film, Steve. It, it holds up to repeat viewings. And especially if those viewings are spaced apart. As you age, because films don't change, you as a viewer changes. You know, I change. Mm. You know, my, my personal perspective changes based on my own life experience, where, where I am in a particular point in time. Film doesn't change, but we do. That's one of the beauties of film, that you can watch a film age 20 you can watch that same film age 30 watch that same film again 10 years later age 40 and have three considerably different experiences of that film well, when i first saw it i remember thinking that shelley duvall's performance was really great yeah 
I agree. And I, and, I can remember and, feeling and, that way. Yeah, and I think now, perhaps the reason I felt that is because it feels so real. Yeah. You know, when you're a teenager, you don't you don't understand yeah. that. Whereas now, I, I, can, I can see the pain that she was going through. There's a beautiful little scene in the opening of the US cut of the film, which um, it, it's when Jack, Jack is off having his interview about the Overlook. Wendy and Danny are back home. Wendy gets visited by... Um, a, a kind of child psychologist who comes to see Danny after an unexplained episode that they don't go into. She then sits down with Wendy and she's given her words of reassurance that he's just a normal little boy. But then it's at that point where Wendy opens up to this psychologist and says that Jack, um, who's been on the wagon for five months, the reason he stopped drinking is because in a fit of rage after Danny had thrown some of his manuscript over the floor, he pulled him up off the floor, pulled him away with such force, he dislocated his shoulder. But the way she's saying it in her performance, she's kind of smiling and, 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 and normalising what he's done and saying, well, you know, it's a, in a way it's good because it meant that he said, you know, Wendy, I'm never going to touch a hair on his head again. I'm never going to hurt him. And we've had five months of Jack being free of alcohol. But the way she is perfectly playing this sort of victim of domestic abuse who's trying to normalise the abuse that her... And, you know, certainly her young son is being subjected to. And in the process, she's an enabler as she's well. She's an enabler because she is then further enabling this to yeah. carry on because it's only the end of the film where he's gone completely crazy, you know, due either to the fact that that's inherently who he is and or a combination of this being possessed by the, the hotel that she actually takes her young son away be, before the both of them are killed. But, you know, that, that little scene at the beginning, it's just, it's just an amazing performance from Shelley Duvall. I wish I'd seen that one. I know, obviously, we've gone into this having both re-watched different versions of the film, but, you know, for me, it just, it opens up new aspects of the film which were there, but which, which are kind of embellished upon it. It's just such a shame that Kubrick decided, for whatever reason, whether it was him or the studio, to remove 25 minutes of footage for the international market, because I, I do think it's, it's less of a film, literally, without it. Yeah, yeah. And something you were saying just now as well made me think, the character as well, when I first saw the film, well, maybe not when I first saw the film, but when I've seen it subsequently, it's been coloured because of the character in the book. Yeah. And maybe that's why I thought it's not a very warm mm. um, relationship. And, I mean, I, I love, you know, as you said, we've already discussed, I love reading, and I do like the anticipation of a book that I've really, really loved being turned into a film. But sometimes mm. it colours your perception in a way that the filmmaker yeah. is is in a, in a direction the filmmaker is not going, mm. and maybe that's the reason why initially I thought this this relation I don't like this relationship from the very beginning. Mm. And if I hadn't read the book, maybe I would have picked up on this uh, yeah. idea that he's, he resents his family because of his lack of success. You know whether I'm whether I'm at an advantage or a disadvantage having not read the book, I don't know. But for me, The Shining, you know, I've mentioned before in our horror special episode that it is one of my certainly one of my five favorite horror films. Like we've said before. Isn't Steve, those lists that we do are more of a point of conversation. They're not definitive. No, in no, some they, ca- they would change. Know, yeah, in, in some hours. cases they are. You know, you could. Yeah. I'm fairly confident that my favorite of a particular genre will be fixed, depending on what that is. Possibly a western that I would always gravitate towards as being my all-time favorite. But when it comes to horror films, it's such a vast, all-encompassing genre that it's very hard to pick one. But certainly, The Shining is an absolute masterclass in just precision filmmaking. It scares the shit out of me because, like I said, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm just a big scaredy cat when it comes to anything supernatural. See, I, I've never I found it very thrilling. Yeah, but I've never found it that scary. Mm. Apart from a few little scenes like the girls in the corridor. Yeah, but there's something about children mm-hmm. in horror films. Yeah, all you have to do is put one on the screen, and all of a sudden you're scared. Mm. You know. Whether it's Kubrick's best film, I, I don't know, but I certainly think it's up there. And I got to say, hands down for me, 
it is just an absolute masterpiece and oh undoubtedly and it's a very important it is a very important film extremely influential and I think it's one of the greatest films I think we're ever going to be talking about on this podcast Mm. yeah even though I I can say that I might not love the film I can't help but admire it that's right and to recognise it so there you go that's our uh, kind of rundown of Stanley Kubrick's 1980 horror classic The Shining was a kid there was a place a dark place they closed it down and let it rot but the things that lived there they come back You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. The world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These hunted devils. They'll eat what chance. And they've noticed that little girl. Wow. Hi there. Get out of my head! Get out! I haven't felt power like that in so long. They're coming. Where are we going? There's a place. You run, dear. And then I will find you. And you will scream for years. Come play with us forever and ever. We fast forward 39 years to Doctor Sleep, directed by Mike Flanagan and based on the 2013 novel by Stephen King. The book was a critical success and am I right, Steve, that it is pretty much beloved by the majority of King fans? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's one of the... Well, it's one, probably one of the most beloved of his, yeah. of his books. You know, this is Flanagan's second adaptation of a King book after 2017's Gerald's Game and he also directed Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House. Mm. Have you seen any of uh, Mike Flanagan's work before Doctor Sleep? Well, I've seen um, Gerald's Game, yeah. which is not a horror, but it's it's tense. Yes. It's a fantastically mm. tense movie. This is something we've discussed before, and I, I know I've discussed it with other people. I am terrible with TV series. So I've seen mm. the first couple of episodes of uh, Hill House, and I really, really enjoy it. But I have a terrible habit of leaving it and then never going back to a series. Um, that's why I much prefer movies. And it doesn't matter how good the series are. There's a couple of series which I've really, really enjoyed. I think, oh, this is fantastic. And then I'll never go back. So uh, it was last night, you and I, and also our Film 89 buddy Neil Gaskin. We had one of our uh, regular Film 89 cinema trips. What were your expectations going into Doctor Sleep? Well, first of all, can we just say that Neil is a bit of a wuss, isn't he, when it comes to horror films? We, he showed the trailer for the new Grudge film. 
and he just moved over to me and he said, you can review that one. You, you can add me to that. You can categorise me exactly the same. I think my exact words were, fuck that, am I seeing that film? No, it, yeah. For, for someone who, who doesn't like supernatural stuff like that, yeah, that was a little bit too much for me. <laughs> well, in regards to the um, Doctor Sleep, though, I, uh, the, the book was one I put off for a long, long time because the idea of a sequel to The Shining, mm. I just didn't know how you could do yeah. it and I didn't know how, you know if I would like it at all. And, but, of course, the, its reputation was I mean, growing the last couple of years and people have really, really liked it. He is going through a bit of a real purple patch, patch at the moment, some really classic novels coming out. Last year, I read the book and it's a really fantastic book it's very different to his old style it's a very change in technique in Stephen King his old style he used to say that he, he took no notice of plot whatsoever he would just have a general idea of what he wanted to do and then he would let the the characters take him there but his new novels are very much plot driven you know he's not forgetting the characters because he is exemplary at his um, construction of characters you know Doctor Sleep is much more plot driven but mm. my god it was a great ride really really enjoyed it so when I was going to the film you know my hopes were very very high and the early indication was very very good especially Rebecca Ferguson as mm-hmm. um, Rose the Hat I was really really looking forward to it. I, my expectations were quite high now I don't recall you and I and the rest of the 49 team being that enamoured when we first saw the initial trailers it was when I think the most recent trailers came out which showed far more of the actual footage from or recreation of footage from The Shining I think that's when I kind of got more on board with this film because it was at that point and I thought oh hang on this isn't a film that is more of an outright adaptation of King's book but it's more something that could well end up bridging both King's version and Kubrick's version well that that was always going to be the most difficult aspect of whoever was going to uh, adapt this book and it was you know eventually somebody was going to do it they seem to be doing every one of his books recently so that was going to be the biggest hurdle that anybody's going to have to um, overcome because Doctor Sleep the book is a sequel to the novel not the film yes and as we've discussed they are quite different however being a, a visual medium and the fact that the film is so well loved Mike Flanagan had to address the fact that he was a sequel to to a book, mm-hmm. but he had to you know acknowledge the film as well. Now that's a bit of a tightrope. B- before we go on and start to analyze this film in detail, as, as it says in the text of the episodes on whatever platform you're watching on, we are going to be going full on spoiler filled. Now I know in the US by the time this episode is, then Doctor Sleep probably isn't going to have opened nationally yet. So please, if you haven't seen Doctor Sleep, if you want to see it, turn us off. Put us aside, go away, watch the film, and then come back and listen to us because we are going to be going in-depth and completely spoiler-filled on this film. I find that quite surprising that it's out in the US later. And I was wondering if... It, because it's a perfect Halloween film. Yeah. It actually opened up here on a Thursday, with most films open up on a Friday. Yeah. Especially for Halloween. I'm wondering, is it because... Is Halloween such a big holiday in America where it's not? It's the huge. Year, no, it's, it's, and yeah. that maybe people don't go to the cinema as much. Is I that don't the reason? know. I don't know. I don't understand because you know it made sense that last year you had the you know the, the new sequel to Halloween released in time for you know October thirty first. Mm. Whereas over here we had the film on Halloween, and then bearing in mind the week before we had Terminate the Dark Fate, and then US viewers actually got Terminate the Dark Fate released on 
I think Halloween, wasn't it? Yeah, Why did they have that as their Halloween film and then have Doctor Sleep released in a whole week later? This doesn't make much sense, really, from a marketing point of view. Well, I, I suppose they moved it back because they didn't want to uh, clash with Terminator. But you know, is it? But do you think why would they release the Terminator on exactly? On I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it seems like a bit of an odd move. But I certainly think you know this is one of those occasions where British cinema goes benefited because we had a, a, a far more fitting Halloween film to go and see. Yeah, yeah. Years following the events of The Shining, and now grown-up Dan Torrance meets a young girl with similar powers that he has been trying to hide for most of his life. And it's about his efforts to try and protect her from a cult known as the True Knot, who are a kind of bunch of semi-immortal, almost like vampires. Well, you say, say Shining Vampires again, Shining just vampires, like the Overlook Hotel. Who, who seek out children with Shining powers and kill them. And as they're dying, they kind of absorb this sort of shining essence that they kind of give off which is like this sort of smoky ether kind of form which prolongs their lives steam they call it steam that's right obviously the, the opening of the film now it opens in 1980 we see a young girl being kind of distracted and then as we like to find out kidnapped and tortured to death young boy that's obviously all in 1980 yes. and then whilst that's happening we cut to the Overlook Hotel. In the brief sort of moments in the film that we, or I say brief, it's actually quite a, it's a good 10 minutes or so, isn't it? It's set in 1980. It is, yes, yeah. We obviously see Wendy and Danny Torrance after or immediately following or maybe a few months after the events yeah, of The Shining. Living in Florida. Living in Florida, as far away from the snow as they can. What do we think of Mike Flanagan's decision, instead of doing, you know, going down the Rogue One route of trying to use CGI in order to recreate a younger Shelley Duvall or a younger Danny Lloyd, what do we think of the choice to recast? Well, I think that they wouldn't be able to afford a CGI no. because this is not a huge budget film. Yeah. However, I think that the woman who plays uh, uh, Wendy Torrance, I think she's a, a, an excellent choice. She's got the look. You, know, you 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 can tell it's a different woman. That's not the point. Yeah. You know, but she's she's got the look. She sounds like she does that moment when she's running across the road. Yeah. Frightened that um, she's lost um, Danny and he's might have mm-hmm. you know walked away. She sounds perfectly. Yeah. Like um, Sherry Duval. And is it Carl Lumbly who plays Halloran? Is he would you say reasonable fit in for yeah, Scatman yeah, Carvers? Yeah. Again, you, you know, it's, it's obvious that they they picking people with talent who yeah. looks like you know the the, um, mm. the original characters, whereas they could have gone just and you know for lookalikes and then uh, without the talent that would have been so easy. I think, as we'll come to later in the film, obviously it's used for, you know, the, the recasting is used for the purposes of Halloran, Danny and Wendy, and then later on as it comes to, we do eventually see Jack. Given the fact that Jack Nicholson is, he's Jack Nicholson. No one else is Jack Nicholson. No, I know. I think it was at that point when, in recasting him, that's when he kind of pulled me out of it a little. Mm. But I think that would have been, as it would for all four of the characters who were recast, that, that is ultimately, for me, preferable over them using CGI because... Our eyes are now trained to pick it up. It still isn't convincing enough when they do it in film. We've seen plenty of deep fake technology, which is just frighteningly realistic. Yet, I don't think they've perfected the same thing in film for whatever reason. I don't understand how you, you know, if this technology exists to do deep fake stuff incredibly convincingly, then surely you could do it. You've got, they've got hours upon hours upon hours of footage of, of Shelley Duvall and, and Jack Nicholson that they could easily put together a far more convincing visual effect. But obviously, if budget constraints are going to rear their head, I would much rather see them recast it just so it doesn't pull me out of the film. Yeah, the problem with um, the Jack Nicholson role, though, um, the, the Jack Torrance, is that Jack Nicholson is his own personality. Yes. We know yeah. him so well that, whereas the others, we would forgive more 
with him. You know, and I think Neil had a good point. Perhaps they could have filmed him from behind or perhaps in shadow like they did at the beginning of um, The Departed when obviously he's supposed to have been 20 years younger than he was for the rest of the movie. Or perhaps just had somebody to do the voice and just seen the, the hands. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people out there who can do very, very good Jack Nicholson impersonations. And Jack Nicholson, he could have done it himself maybe. Yeah. You know, because he's coming out of retirement. So, um, you know, it's something he could have done. When we saw Jack Torrance, it took me a moment to realise this is him. It's not Grady. It's not yeah. any of the others. It's not Lloyd. It's not. But he, you know. he's actually taken the Lloyd role, isn't he? He is, yes. But again, you know, we're skipping way on ahead. We are. Going yes. back, obviously, we see a brief period of time in 1980 where Halloran, who is now obviously dead after dying, you know, at the end of the Kubrick's film. Halloran is now a sort of ghostly, almost Obi-Wan-like companion to to, to Danny. And he gives him this ability to set up in his mind these boxes, almost like coffins, whereby if he is still, as we find out, being continually haunted by the remnants of the ghosts of the Overlook Hotel, that he is able to put aside his fears and to trap them in these little boxes where they remain pretty much forever. And you know, we see that quite, you know, it, it, it does get the hairs on the back of my neck going up simply because it just involves the old bath hag from Room, room <laughs> yeah. 237. But it's the way that <clears throat> Danny kind of, when he finally puts these ghosts to rest, so to speak, and he confronts the lady in the bath, in the bathroom, we obviously later find out what's happened. And then he just comes out of the bathroom, sits back down with his mum, and then we flash forward to 2011. And we've got a bearded, almost like an, he looked like in Revenge of the Sith. A bearded... Um, He's Obi-Wan again. Yeah. A bearded Ewan McGregor who's now playing a grown-up Danny Torrance. What do you think of Ewan McGregor's casting and his subsequent performance in this film? Well, I have to admit, I'm not a huge Ewan McGregor fan. I think he can... Coming from someone who loves the Star Wars prequels? Well, yeah. Oh, well, he can, sometimes he's very, very good. Sometimes I think he's less convincing. But I don't think I've ever seen him as convincing as he is as a drunk in this film. His, his eyes, he's not overdoing it. Obviously, he's, he's, not he's, he's played people. an addict before in Trainspot and Trainspot. Yes, yeah, but this is a very different one. Yeah. This is this is somebody, you know, that's, that's you know, people who are in the monks, in, in the middle of it right then and there. Yeah. Whereas this is somebody, he's faced the worst. He's, he's at a moment, just like um, what uh, Wendy is, you know, hoped that the breaking of the arm, the dislocating of the arm of mm-hmm. Danny would be a turning point for Jack, which in the book it is. He's faced his moment as well with the um, you know the woman the the coke and her son. Yeah. His performance when he gets off the bus and he's talking to, you know, the person who will be his sponsor. Uh, uh, Cliff Curtis's character. Yes. Yeah. That that those moments are, are magnificent acting, yeah. and it's not just the haggardness of his his look, but it's also the haggardness mm. of of who he is. He's he's not looking at people directly. He's, he, you know, it's almost shame. That's, you know, that's exuding mm. from him. I think it's a fantastic performance. Now, I know that Bill Scurry, who seems to be a master of picking out dodgy American accents from British actors, I'm sure he, he would certainly have something to say about Ewan McGregor's American accent. You know, I, I think maybe accent issues aside, I think, yeah, it is a damn good performance. Yeah. It really is. You think he'd be able to do an American accent now, though? Yeah, exactly. Now, Steve, 
again, this is something you could hopefully answer, but it seems to me like you mentioned the thing there with you know the girl that he picks up in the bar, and then you've got the scene then the following morning with her completely out of it and the little baby. Which, as we later find out, they die they as a result of him yeah, leaving. Yeah, them she there. overdoses, and then right. the child is left there to. To starve well, yeah, to, to death. Starve, yeah, yeah. I think for me this was one of the most disturbing aspects of the film. But is it right, Steve, that this is a part of the book that played a greater part and it seems to me it's something that's just included by Flanagan for completion purposes but it isn't something that's carried through with, with as much of a sort of narrative importance that is in the book? This is the difference between what you can put into a book and what you can put into a film. Right. Because obviously in a book you can go, you can um, analyse somebody's interior motives mm. and thoughts in better than you can in a film. Sure. Because um, it's a completely different medium. In the book, he, even afterwards, and he's been, um, you know, many, many years later and he's been dry, he's, mm. you know, with the AA and he's doing very well. It's still something that still haunts him. It's something that he thinks that he will never be able to be free because what he did was so horrific. And he, he blames himself because he took the yeah. money. You know, he left him there. It's so horrific that he he, he would never forgive himself. Yeah. And that's part of the book. Is towards the end of the book, he has to come out and, and tell people, thinking that they're just going to judge him terribly and dismiss yeah. him. And you know, now this, this was a point that Neil raised when um, he and I were discussing the film earlier on today. Now he says, with regards to the storyline kind of being condensed down from what's quite a hefty book, a book again, again a book which, like me, he hasn't read. He actually feels like the fact that the whole subplot with the mother and the baby dying was never really or overtly explained. But then it gives us enough to show us that this is maybe the kick up the backside that Dan needed to get his act together without ramming that down your throat. Mm. It, it doesn't spoon feed the audience. No, no, no. Which, which I think is you know the mark of, of, of a good writer and certainly a good director that he, you know, he doesn't have to lay everything out on the plate. Bear in mind, this is a two and a half hour film. So it's not like you know they, they condense it down to a, you know, an action packed 90 minute film because it's nothing like that. It does, you know, from the point of view of being just a film, kind of take his time, but it doesn't kind of spoon, spoon feed the audience unnecessary superfluous plot information, which it can't work out for itself. No, no, you're absolutely right. Like I said, part of it, you know, in a book, you can carry that theme mm. over. In a film, if you were going to constantly refer back to it, it might be too much. Yeah. And it might actually, you, might, you start to think, well, why are they showing this all the time? Is it going to come back? Yeah. But of course, in the in a book, you know that it's just something interior. It's a, this great shame that he has. So pretty early on in the film, we get introduced to our main antagonists, which are this group of kind of long-lived... I think the closest thing we can come to describe it is vampires. They they, they, they feed on this the energy of these, these gifted people, and by feeding on that energy, it gives them long lives. Obviously, they're not vampires in the traditional sense, but you know they're led by Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat. What do you think of Ferguson's performance She's in this fantastic. film? fantastic. Isn't she just... Oh, she oh. is so menacing. Yes. She is uh, so terrifying. The yeah, she is gorgeous. She is. <laughs> Flanagan is picked. You know, for me, she is just one of the most beautiful actresses working in film today. Jeez. She is just... I fell in love with her in The Greatest Showman. I thought she was just incredible in that. She is just amazing in the Mission Impossible films. But in this film, it's just a whole different level. You know, the acts that she's carrying out, her in a group going around... And as you see later on with the baseball kid, who's actually played by Jacob Tremblay, the young lad from Room. Oh, okay. Pretty much uncredited as far as I'm aware. But if you looked it up on IMDb, it is him. That whole scene is just oh, horrific. It is and awful. Flanagan 
as much as a lot of what they're doing to this kid is off screen, you don't really want to see anyway because it's absolutely horrible. We're seeing and hearing more than enough. But she is doing these horrendous things, but there's still that part of it. You just can't take your eyes off her because she is just no. mesmerizing. I just think it, it's just an amazing performance. Yeah, and she's so commanding. You, you Everybody in the... You, she is the leader mm. of the True Knot, and I don't think anybody would ever cross her or try to take that leadership off her. But the young girl that obviously you know we mentioned in, in like the brief kind of couple of lines of a synopsis I attempted to give is young Abra Stone played by Kylie Curran. Now going back to what I was saying about The Shining with Danny Lloyd, what do we think of Kylie Curran in what is pretty much um, one of the three main lead roles? Yes, yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, I think that um, it's a role which because any any time you're talking about the supernatural it can come across as mm. as false yeah. you know it's not real it takes talent to you know especially young talent like that to actually be able to talk about these things and make it as if it's a real thing for her what what, what i like about her character is the fact that even though she is the, in a way, what would be in the past a damsel in distress, she's actually the one who seeks Danny out. She's clearly. Oh, she's not a damsel in no, distress. No, she is all. clearly far more powerful than Danny. And as we later find out, she is what Rose the Hat describes as a whale, someone who has got a shining power to such a massive extent that she could prolong their lives for yeah. God knows well, how and long. And in fact, the relationship between the two of them, it's almost like Moby Dick yeah. talking about the whale. Yeah. Because. Uh, Rose the Hat becomes obsessed with catching yeah. this, uh, you know, this girl. But what I love, as much as this girl is initially terrified, when she gets her shit together and she realizes what she's capable of, she is willing to go toe to toe with this woman, and she knows what these this group of people are doing. She has seen using her abilities firsthand what this horrible thing that they did to this young boy. You know, she was there. She actually kind of witnessed it. It, it was absolutely terrifying for a young girl to to see yeah. and and to go through. But she very quickly steps up to the plate and just goes toe to toe with her. And the way in which it's done, obviously, you know, the the, the true knot when they discover this this young girl do they describe her as a watcher because she's watching them she's watching yeah them, she's yes, watching yeah. them from afar yes. but then obviously because it's part um, of their abilities yeah because rose and uh, and zan mclaren who i think is also amazing as crow daddy he is absolutely fantastic he was in there's a season two of fargo and he's also in westworld absolutely brilliant actor He's fantastic in this film as well. But because the both of them become very quickly aware of, of, of Abra's amazing abilities and, and go after her, you've then got her kind of exponentially learning how to kind of deal with and control her powers, obviously aided by Danny to an extent. But she, she's, she's very much... Yeah, she's not a damsel in distress. She is a protagonist as much as Danny is. Yeah, that, one thing that Stephen King does not get credit for sometimes is the characters he writes. You know, and, and the children. And the children, yeah. You've got It, Stand By Me. You've got countless films where he's just written amazing child characters. There's this um, idea that, you know, in order to make a a book or even a film interesting, the main character has to have Mm -hmm. flaws. Stephen King doesn't do that sometimes. He just makes ordinary people really likeable and you just want to hang around with them. Mm -hmm. And Abra is the type of young girl that, you know, if she was hanging around with your daughter, you know, you'd be very happy with. Yeah, Yeah, she's extremely likeable. And again, I, I... I can't wait to get at this because it is by far my favourite scene in the film. Rose, she spends a lot of the time on top of this, um, what, what do they call them in America? Mobile homes. Mobile homes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mobile, mobile home. Winnebago's. Winnebago. She's, she sat on the top of this Winnebago at night and she goes into the kind of like this tra- this trance state. From there then, whether she's physically transporting herself or not, I don't think she is, but no, in no, essence, her, her yeah, soul yeah. ends up flying up above the clouds and flies hundreds or maybe thousands of miles, we don't know, at night time. 
seeking out Abra's essence, her, her power, to kind of find out where she's living. Because as soon as she works out what state she's in, Rose and the rest of the, the true knot are going to go after her. That entire scene, from a visual point of view, was just absolutely oh, jaw-dropping. Fantastic. It was jaw-dropping. Yeah, I, yeah. I was, I think, I, I was just audibly gasping. I, I just thought it was absolutely phenomenal. And you, you say about the film not having much of a budget but no I, I think mean, it's I, I not mean, a mega budget it's not a, I mean, yeah, it's not it mega budget and sometimes the CGI mm. to uh, de-age or to, yeah. to, to change people's faces that's very very expensive as we know from the Irishman yeah, yeah. certainly but I think from a point of view of the special effects sorry how effective this image was of her just flying you know, through the air, and it's it's almost as if she is all she is always our fixed point in the yes, center yes. of the frame. Yeah. Again, going back to something Kubrick yeah. did, and then when she lands in Abra's neighborhood, and then she's looking at her house, and then again, I think without cutting from that angle, the camera pans up as she goes upside down mm. over the house and ends up entering Abra's bedroom, and then we've got that incredible scene where by this point now we know that she's actually in Abra's mind because yeah. there's like that those rows of filing cabinets behind her which we find out are Abra's memories and Rose wants to access her memories in order to find, find out information about yeah. her yeah. but then we very quickly find out that this is a complex trap that Abra has set up and it was at that point when Rose gets confronted by this it was almost like an avatar version of her now I didn't know I hadn't made the connection but early on in the film we see a shot in the bedroom of a little kind of static action figure on the side of her bed Neil had made the connection that that little figure was very similar to the avatar that Abra later takes on where she's got the purple sort of rinse straight hair okay yeah and the kind of no eyes from a visual point of view, when she's confronting her, looking different to what we've seen, yeah. but let, but looking really sort of menacing, yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was just absolutely incredible. You've got that bit there where she gets her hand then jammed. Oh, she yeah. gets her hand, and again, it jammed in the filing cabinet. Yeah, harking back to the bit from Gerald's game with the handcuffs, yes, where she yeah. literally ends up almost degloving her hand by pulling the handcuff off, and then she's doing the same where she's got her almost like a dog bite on her hand and you can just see the skin ripping off and it's absolutely horrendous and the fact that all of a sudden now uh, Rose is, is certainly hasn't got the upper hand she's in agonising pain now this is the thing Alice Abra who's in right. Rose's head now if they're in each, in, each, in each other's heads how later on then do we actually find out that Rose actually sustains this injury it, it must be some sort of psychosomatic yes yeah, psychosomatic yeah. link between the two yeah. that this is in a way kind of happening, just yeah. not in a way or, or a space or, or a dimension that we can happily understand. At that point, I thought, holy shit, Flanagan, you are you are a director to watch. That is definitely a standout moment. It is a standout moment. Yeah. Is it anything like that in the book? Is it described explicitly that it's something that Flanagan could have just thought, yeah, I, King is describing that in such a way that I can, I can easily envisage how to translate down to the big screen. Yeah, I, the, uh, I think that this this whole idea of um, filing cabinets and um, libraries, I, I'm sure that's in the book. And, and it's a, a wonderful visual idea of mm. how, you know, where, and, and it also fits in with Danny's boxes that he keeps yeah. his secrets in. Um, so it's a way of linking all three of them together. That's what I'm inside our minds. Uh, right, one thing I, I meant to mention, when, when I asked you about differences maybe between book and the film, and then we mentioned obviously that mother and son, which is kind of like as if it's almost like an idea that's put in front of us, but then kind of taken away and doesn't he doesn't come yeah, back to. Yeah. Another thing, when we jump forward from 1980, we go to 2011, where Danny is confronting his alcohol ends up going to this Alcoholics Anonymous where he meets Billy Freeman, Cliff Curtis's character. They form uh, you know, a very 
close friendship which carries on and then we jump forward another eight years to 2019 but going back to that initial AA class where you've got Bruce Greenwood playing the you know the, the character of Dr. John yeah. there's a scene where Danny speaks to him about the fact that earlier that day he'd left his watch is it right that that whole watch sort of mini subplot plays a bigger role in the book well, it is it's a way of convincing the doctor later that um, Danny's on the level um, because the doctor has always suspected this something right. because of you know now I didn't pick up on that in the film and I wondered why well, because the doctor in the film is almost sidelined Got very you. very yeah. early you know oh, uh, yeah and exactly and I, 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 I thought maybe it was a role that was cut down from the book because why all of a sudden would Danny, who's gone to such lengths to keep his, his powers under wraps, would he all of a sudden open up to this guy? Yeah. Well, what you got to remember is the, the book is 500 plus pages mm. and the film is very true to the book. But you yeah. can't have everything. But going back to that scene with the Doctor, right? Uh, let me ask you a question because when I was watching that scene, when they were talking in the Doctor's office, mm-hmm. you know what I was thinking of? The, the shape of that office, the style of the office. The interview, the interview. from the first film. Yes. Yes. Right. Okay, I'm, no, I'm glad we, we we have addressed in depth the, the visual style of Kubrick's film. Now, one of my biggest concerns going into Doctor Sleep was how the director, as and I don't want to take anything away from Mike Flanagan as a director, but at, at this point in his career, you cannot in any way compare him to Stanley oh, Kubrick. No, no, at this point, you know, prior to this film, and my concern was how the hell does any director alive today? Doesn't I don't I don't care you you Christopher Nolan's or or whatever there, there is no director I think that's got the the same visual ability to put on screen images like Kubrick did in such a meticulous way there's there's just there's just no one currently alive working today like him I thought how the hell is Mike Flanagan even gonna come close to doing this he can't but do you think given the film that we've seen that is certainly a decent effort v- visually I personally thought the film was really yeah, strong. What, what I thought, and I don't know if you can cope with this, the scenes when they go back to the Overlook Hotel, that he did seem to maybe mimic yeah. Kubrick's style, but the, when they were away from the hotel, it was very much a different style. Yeah, I, I think with Asti, there's so much information given about how he specifically shot the Overlook Hotel. They used a particular, I think it was like a, like a 9.78 lens or some particular lens that Garrett Brown has mentioned. And the camera position would always be at a certain level from the floor um, when he was in the corridors of, of the hotel. And Kubrick was so specific that they even, you've got this, this sort of dolly system the cameras put on. In the original film, he said to Garrett Brown, could you put a speedometer on that dolly? So when we're moving the camera back and forth for multiple takes, we can actually make sure that we're pushing it at the right speed all the time. That's how specific oh, okay. Kubrick was. And I don't know if this is a common thing with directors, but when he was getting the film developed, he would make sure that the laboratory only exposed this with a certain amount of light in order to enhance certain colours. Because if you look at the dailies of The Shining, instead of seeing this cold blue, everything was like a, a kind of mustardy yellow. Because... A lot of the fake smoke that was used was an oil-based smoke. So the actual, as the footage looked, it was yellow. And he would, in a way, naturally colour correct it in the developing process to actually make yeah, it look yeah. blue. So he knew inside and out the, the, you know, the, the whole filmmaking process as much as, as well as any director I know. But I definitely think, think that Flanagan has shown he's got a massive reverence for Kubrick's film and has tried his best to make this film look as visually interesting as possible. It does, and... 
you know, from the very moment when we first go to Colorado, we see that tracking shot again, that aerial tracking shot going over the same Oh, uh, yeah, over that the same was... island. You, in fact, you at one point I remember when they said they were going to Colorado. I remember you turning in, yeah. and he went, "Oh shit, they're going back." <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give in to like. There's two types of fan servicing. There's fan servicing for the right reason, and there's fan servicing just for the sake of it. Yeah, when you're making a film like this, if you're going to go to such lengths to distance it completely from the original, then that's fine. But that's making a different film to what this is. This film is very much. People have said it's a bridge between the original book of The Shining and Kubrick's version of The Shining, and then also the subsequent 2013 book, Doctor Sleep. I think this is very much an adaptation of Doctor Sleep, but it is an adaptation of Doctor Sleep that instead of following on from Kubrick's original, uh, sorry, from King's original book, this follows on from Kubrick's 1980 film. Yeah, the uh, the overlook scenes are definitely harking back yeah. to the film, and they. But like we said already, that's something they needed to do because yeah. the film is so beloved. However, I, I know Stephen King himself has said that he, when he saw Doctor Sleep for the first time, he said it's as if he's taken Kubrick's film mm. and made it warm. Yes, yes, because there's definitely a warmth in this film that you could argue is lacking. Yeah, the relationship between yeah. Danny and Abra. It's a, a father-daughter or an yeah. uncle. Yeah, she niece. calls him Uncle Dan. Yeah, relationship. And a lot of the time, they're not even together. They're no. right down over yeah, a chalkboard. Yeah, that's right. You've got a lot more of the sort of proper familial bond you know, between Abra and her mother and father. Even, even though it's to a more fucked up degree, you've got it between the members of, of, of the true knot. Oh, yes, there's there's yes, a definite true. camaraderie. You, you, you've got um, Carol Struckian's character of what's his name the um, old tall guy oh um, yeah grandpa yeah yeah. now you know they when they realise that him clearly being like the oldest of the group maybe uh, you know when he's starting to sort of wane and, and, and die as a result of not getting any of the steam yeah, grandpa flick yeah grandpa flick they all get kind of a bit concerned about that because as much as they are evil life sucking child killing demons they are a family there's definitely a warmth there and you know, my biggest concern going into this was the fact that how was Flanagan going to pay service to fans of the film, fans of the book, and fans of obviously you know the it book that he was adapted yeah. directly of, of, of the of the of the 2013 book Doctor Sleep. Again, maybe I'm not the in the best position to you know judge that, but being a huge fan of the original film, I think this is as good a sequel to The Shining as I could ever hope for. Yes, I, I really do. I know we've only seen it last night. You know, as you said before, sometimes you can take a couple of days to digest the film. Neil went in with, I think he said he had like fair to midland expectations, yeah. if that. Now, bear in mind, the night before, I had watched The Shining and basically just, I think I watched it and I put it straight back on immediately afterwards. I kind of went into that film in the frame of mind of, I was hyped up on The Shining already, so I was in the perfect frame of mind. Even though I still didn't have particularly high expectations of the film, because I got little experience of Flanagan as a director, and I was just thinking, this isn't Kubrick. How can it even come close? But I think he does it because even though they start at the Overlook and they end at the Overlook, yes. it's not The Shining. That's right. And in between, you've got the best part of maybe an hour and 45, at least mm, two hours, yeah. of character building. So by the time we actually, you know, by the time we actually get to the end, we care about these characters completely, don't we? Yeah. And from that point of view, it's far less what Kubrick was maybe trying to do of being just like this very cold, meticulous, sort of methodical bit of visual storytelling and, and, and tension building. And, and you know, that, that's doing a disservice to The Shining because there's a hell of a lot more than that. 
but yeah with this film there's definitely more of a warmth to it and more of a attention to the characters yeah well they, they build up this um, relationship um, between the characters mm. and also between us the viewer and mm. the characters because that's very very important yeah. especially in horror because you can't really feel for somebody when they are being ter- being terrified being subjected to these terrible things yeah. if you don't like them agreed but then at the same time because of the the background with the shining mm. he doesn't have to build up anything for the end in the finale because mm. we know what it is yeah we've we've got that background as well prior to this film what do you think of and do you, do you agree that this is a pretty much a gorgeous looking film oh it is absolutely yeah, yeah. the, the is fantastic it is it is what do you think of the score bear in mind how how much a, a big part of the original film the score was yeah how do you think the score services the film here I think that by and large I think the, the score is really good I think there's one fault with it and that's the scene when um, Danny gets off the bus and he arrives in the town for the very first time yeah it's all on, ominous it's all discordant and I'm thinking it didn't why? need that it doesn't no. need that no. right did you pick up on the, the the sort of repetitive theme of the heartbeat yes when that was used well I thought it worked but there were a few key scenes where the heartbeat kept playing and playing and playing I thought do you know what they don't need this now because I think the sign of a really good composer is sometimes a composer knows when to embrace silence and when yes. to turn the music off and just to less silence well, that's the director as well it is it yeah. is again this maybe is, a, is nitpicking but when I'm sat there thoroughly enjoying this film but then I become consciously aware of the fact do you know what that, that, that heartbeat is starting to get in the way a little bit it kind of reminds me of when a score becomes a little bit intrusive, like Hans Zimmer's did in Dunkirk. Yes. Where I thought, do you know what? The score is actually getting, really getting in the way now of my enjoyment of this film. Mm. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't anywhere near to the same extent with Dr. Sleep. But that was just a little moment I became consciously aware of when we were watching the film. Yeah, I didn't have a problem so much with the heartbeat. I was aware of it throughout. Mm. But as I say, that scene when he arrives in the town, it's supposed to be a, it's, it's a moment of transformation for him yeah. for the good. And yet the music is is really ominous and it plays against the scene. What, what negative points, then, Steve, have you sort of picked up on in the, well, it's near enough, 24 hours now since we saw the film? The only negative, I, I, I think that there's, especially the second half of the film, it seems a bit rushed. But I think that's because there's so much they need to fit yeah. in and, they, and because it is so true to the book. Mm. But at the same time, I didn't find that a huge problem. No. Because there was a number of moments when you think that it's going to just explode and just turn into a, 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 a maybe just an action yeah. film and just the action will take over and the, you know, but then it goes quiet again, and I like that. And it took a moment to step back yeah. and it, uh, you know, it, it's a two and a half hour film. It, it, it didn't feel like two. It hours. didn't. No, no. I, I agree, Steve. It did not feel like two and a half hours. And, and again, like I said, I've mentioned like three episodes in a row now. I know it's a sign of a not so much a poorly, but maybe a not that well edited film when I'm actually looking at my watch. And last film we were talking about where I was looking at my watch was Terminator Dark Fate, which is a considerably shorter film than Doctor Sleep. Yet with Doctor Sleep, I was not looking at my watch. No, is this that old saying that a 90 minute film can be too long and a three hour film can be too short? Fully agree. Fully agree. I think the editing is fantastic. I think it goes back and to the he fact edited himself. Didn't he? Mike Flanagan, before he was a film director, he was an editor. And I think that definitely comes through in this film. One little thing. Yes. When Billy Freeman gets the guns and all of a sudden they, they set up this... I say all of a sudden. It, you know, it, it does make sense how they set it up. But they set up this this trap yeah, for... Yeah, the ambush. All of a sudden then, you've got Ewan McGregor's character, Dan, all of a sudden becomes like Rob De Niro in The Deer Hunter. He is a crack shot with our rifle. He is. He, yeah. is, he is not missing a thing. It's not as bad. I remember Ewan McGregor again in Angels and Demons. 
and throughout the film he plays this you know this priest and then all of a sudden mm. right at the end oh I can fly a helicopter we can get us yeah. <laughs> that was a little bit what I thought afterwards I thought ah oh, do you know what well Maybe. we don't know the background no Maybe we, don't know, we don't know the background but I thought that was a, a great little scene I, yeah. you know, and it was great then to finally see those sick child killers getting off so I thought that was great and yeah. they, the way they went as well looked painful which, it did which it made did, it all yeah. better because it, it's, it's kind of like it was very much um, reminded me of um, Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man when oh, yes. they when you know they they putting that invisible serum into them and their skin becomes translucent. Yeah. You can see their muscles, you can see their bones yeah, and, and everything yeah, yeah. underneath. Well, and the scene when um, Grandpa Flick dies, yeah, I realized because at the mo- one moment they'd all they this grief, yeah, and, they, 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 and then as soon as he goes and the steam is released, they dive on top they of do. him like yeah. they are just you know like vampires. Like, yeah, like you say, we've got. That incredible recreation of that shot that is, apart from the time of day being different, which is great. Otherwise, you're just recreating the shot of them flying over that little island yes. as we fly up the Mount Hood and we see the Overlook Hotel now boarded up. You've got a big climax with Danny and Abra waiting for Rose to come for them. She finally does. What do we think then of that whole scene? Which I, since we've seen the film, I, I stayed away from every review I could of this film although I did watch James Hancock's review which was spoiler free some of the reviews I've heard people saying that they felt they were if there was any flaw with the film it was in this latter part did you think that this was to the film's detriment? well he does take a time going around the hotel mm-hmm. but I think that's that there's a bit of you know fan service there but I think it's necessary and it? nostalgia but yeah. I didn't find that a flaw no because I enjoyed going around the yes. it again you know and seeing it wake up yes Absolutely. You know, so I don't find that a flaw at no. all. You know, the only flaw really in those scenes is the Jack Nicholson lookalike. <sighs> but what else could they have done? Well, listen, to me, you know, like Neil said, he said he would have liked it if they should kept him off camera. But if they kept him off camera and hadn't found or, or got Jack Nicholson back to do the voice, we wouldn't have known who he was talking to. I think. Yeah. You, you had to see him, and I think when we, if you, if you think back to Rogue One. When we first saw the artificial grandma of Tarkin, it was a little bit jarring. I don't know what you've been like, but in subsequent viewings now, I'm willing to give that a pass because yeah. I'm like, no, do you know what? It is what it is. And I think it's a damn good stab. And for better or worse, I'm happy with the fact that they're just trying to do this. Yes, yeah, yeah, the yeah. fact that yeah. Mike Flanagan's gone the other way and instead of going down the, what you could argue is the probably the, the, the easier route of trying to do the, the, the CGI sort of replication of a younger Jack Nicholson, yeah. that they actually just recast. I thought, for, for better or worse, credit to him for not trying to go the obvious route in this day and age. I think that's something that subsequently wins. I might be a bit It more, may well. Yeah, yeah, but, but of course, as we've already said, you know, this is Jack Nicholson. It is. And that makes it more difficult. That's right, it is, yeah. Recasting. Because the others being recast, we, yeah. we are more forgiving with because we, they don't have that, yeah. that position in our hearts. So Steve, as our you know, resident Stephen King expert, and what did you think of the way they finally off-rose? Oh, excellent! Yeah, yes, yeah. In the uh, the book, of course, in the original book, the overlook burns down. It does, and of course, you know, of course. Uh, but then, what happens in the original book is that their campsite, the True Knots campsite, is actually on that site. Right. And when um, Danny comes back, he releases as he Got does in you. the film. Got you. So um, releases all those stored. Yeah, up. yeah. So it, it is a place where yeah. naturally. These vampires would would yeah. gather, I think. So, how successful then as an adaptation of both King's 2013 book and a sequel to The Shining, be it the original book or the film? How successful do you think Mike Flanagan was in 
bridging all of those different things. Oh, very successful. Yeah. I think I think that he did the the best job that you could do with mm-hmm. something like that. You know, what I mean, because as I said earlier, it's walking a tightrope, and I think he walked it. One of the um, pleasant surprises of 2019. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and it's one of the best. He, he hasn't got the best um, track record in terms of books to films. Yeah, and, I, and Stephen King would be the first to admit that. Right. However, yeah. I think this is certainly one of the best. You, you asked me last night. You said, "How would I rate this?" Would I think it, what you asked me specifically was. Is this for you the best Stephen King adaptation since the Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, because that's what people were saying. Yes, yeah. for me, the Shawshank Redemption is just the be all end all. I, I, it's one of my favorite films of all time. I think, and as much as I think it's become cool to sort of shit on the Shawshank Redemption because it's it's held that lofty position on IMDb yeah. as being the number one film of all time for such a long time now. People always rail against success, don't they? Yeah, they do. They do. Mm. The Shawshank Redemption wasn't a success on its theatrical release in 1994. It was a theatrical flop. Yeah, I it, remember I saw it in yeah. the cinema, and I think I was one of the only ones. Exactly. It became a success on home video, and it was a film that people fell in love with over the course of a few years, not overnight. Mm. So it isn't a film that just came from, you know, it hit the big screen, it was a massive success. It was a film that earned a success. Bear in mind that it's based on one of King's short stories, well, yeah, novel, yeah, not novella. It, you yeah. know, it's expanded into this phenomenal film yeah. that I, I just think for me is one of the greatest films ever made, and I easily then for me it, it becomes the, the greatest Stephen King adaptation. In between 1994 and today, you know, 25 years, can I think of a Stephen King adaptation I've enjoyed more than Doctor Sleep? Be honest with you, I don't think I don't no, think I can. Probably not. I, mean, I, I was a big fan of the first It yeah. film, and I, I liked the second film, not to the extent, but I, I did like the second. I, well, but yeah, saying that, I actually you know the 2017 It, I absolutely loved. Yeah, really did. I think it's close between, and I haven't seen the second one. I still haven't seen It Chapter Two. Yeah, I, I was a little bit put off by what I've heard about the film. The fact it drags on for a bit, and it did. Oh, I don't think it dragged on a bit. I just think yeah, it, it was not scary no, whatsoever. It, you know, it just so happened to coincide with a bit of a chaotic time in my life, where you know I'd had my third child and I couldn't actually go and see it. So as it turns out, it wasn't ideal for me to go, go and watch the film. I will obviously watch as soon as it comes on the digital, and and and, and is it on Blu-ray yet now? No, not yet. It's not yet. So no, it's okay, but it will be soon. I will catch up with it. I certainly enjoyed um, Andy Muschietti's first yeah. one. I thought it was really, really good. Um, but but um, yeah, at, at the moment, I yeah, you, you might be right there, Steve. This might well be the best adaptation of a Stephen King book since The Shawshank Redemption. So should we just go ahead with the uh, scores? Yeah, I'll give it an, an eight. Though. An eight, yeah. yeah. Um, I've got to say, for pure enjoyment coming out of that film last night I, I would have been thinking yeah it's, it's got to be a nine for me but oh. having calmed down and and well that's the thing I you know, I, I, I always think that the first uh, score that you give a it film is, it is, is based on one experience that's right whereas when you watch it again later it's a different experience yeah. so you could give the score slightly different like I said I didn't like The Shining when I first saw it you, but, yeah you know. yeah Oh, at least I didn't understand it. That's right. I think often when you score a film like this, it's based on your expectations going in. Because I was like kind of fair to Midland, even though I was ready to see a sequel to The Shining, because I I rewatched you know the the first film again, and and for the first time I'd actually seen the longer version and just fell back in love with it all over again. I was ready for this film, but what I wasn't ready for was how much of a visual treat it was, how assured Mike Flanagan's direction was. The performances of Rebecca Ferguson, Ewan McGregor, and young Kylie Curran, who I thought was fantastic. I just thought it was it is as good a sequel to The Shining as I could ever have hoped to have seen. It now 
makes me think, yeah, do you know what? I might actually go and seek out the book or I might just keep it that my knowledge of The Shining and its sequel relates to just the film versions and not to sort of cloud things. And because obviously there's such differences between the original book and the film that I don't even know if I want to kind of go there. I might just keep it as it is and, and not read it. I, I think that Doctor Sleep at the very least is a very, very close adaptation. Yeah. There's so much they've managed to keep in. I don't want to put too much stock in my score. I'm going to settle at the moment with an extremely confident and high 8 out of 10. But all I will say, more important than just a, a mere number, is go and see Doctor Sleep. Yes, absolutely. I think this film thoroughly deserves to be a resounding success. I, I kept I kept my eyes closed to any reviews of the film before we went in last night because I wanted to go in blind. With the exception of, of James Hancock's review, which like I say was spoiler free. He really enjoyed the film. But since then, I, I've, I've had a look to see what this film is scoring and it is getting some really good reviews. Mm. And I think it absolutely deserves it because people hold the original film with such reverence. And I think Mike Flanagan has proven that he does as well. That people just didn't expect it to be as good as it is. No. And whether or not it's a case of on second and third viewings, the film won't be as good, I don't know. But I can't say that at the moment. All I can say is... I had an absolutely great experience with the film last night and I've been thinking about it all day uh, and that's the sign of a really good film. I thoroughly enjoyed it and it gets my highest recommendation because I don't think, for me, there's there's another film that's currently on release in the cinemas I would rather go and see than than this. Yeah. And, and Neil said exactly the same as we came out last night. Yeah. You know, he was afraid that maybe he would be the only one of the three of us who liked it. Yeah. But, uh, but as it turns out, yeah. as it often is with us, we've all come out you know, of the film with similar opinions. So that leaves. If it's uh, not Star Wars, we tend to agree, don't we? We agreed on Solo. You, me, and you, 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 myself, and Jim. We all gave it a, 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 you know, a confident eight out of ten. Yeah. So that's uh, a film eighty nine verdict for Doctor Sleep of eight out of ten. Steve, it's been too long since you've been back on. What have you? Um, what would you like to uh, draw our uh, listeners' attention to of all the stuff you've been putting on the site of late? Well, I've been doing a, um, a bit of a Martin Scorsese retrospective, Not looking at his films backwards yeah. Um, because of the imminent release of The Irishman, mm-hmm. which I'll be seeing in uh, about a week or so. And I've you know looked at so far as um, Silence, The Wolf of Wall Street, Hugo, and Shutter Island very soon. Yeah. After that, it'll be, I think I'll try and do The Departed and Gangs of New York and The Aviator so I can cover this can, century. Can we do a joint piece on The Departed? I've got loads to say on that. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, Steve, you've been doing some fantastic pieces of the site. So please, uh, guys and girls, uh, if you haven't already checked out the site, film89.co.uk, there are a raft of fantastic articles, which is growing by the week on, on the site. You know, from the likes of Steve, from Hayden, from Neil, from people like Bill Scurry, John Arminio, Jacob Rivera. We've just got an ever-growing roster of fantastic writers. And it is so diverse. It is really diverse. Mm. But at the same time, all our ships are kind of sailing in a similar direction. You know? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we have our little disagreements about film and stuff like that, but it's always you know done in a kind of friendly and sort of um, you know healthy kind of way. But please, guys and girls, check out film89.co.uk. Steve, where can people find you if they want to hit you up on social media for a chat about film? Well, the best place is Twitter. It's at Welsh Bluesman. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. And you can find the rest of the Film 89 gang at Film 89 UK on Twitter and Facebook. As we say, and as I'm going to continue to say until I'm blue in the face... Thank you so much, guys and girls, for the amazing feedback we've had. We've had so many great reviews on iTunes. Please, if you have access to an Apple device, 
it's the best thing you can do for the Film 89 podcast is to leave us a positive iTunes review. It'll bump us even further up the Apple charts. We have broken into the Apple charts in the last few months in a really big way. You know, the, the Podomatic charts, which encompasses Apple, Spotify, and Podomatic, we've been doing incredibly well there. We cannot thank you all enough. Some of our listeners are so so yeah. generous, so fantastic. It was literally not just, not just a few days ago, but our Terminator episode actually broke our daily download record, and I mean it broke it through the roof. We were I was just stunned when I saw the figures for that day, and, and just massive thanks to all of you. We're just we're completely humbled by your, oh. your continued support. We never thought after thirty seven episodes that we would be doing anywhere near as good as we're doing now. It is just it, we just couldn't thank you all enough and we will continue cranking out what you were telling us is great content about film and television. Well, pretty much Steve, forever and ever. Yeah. <laughs> so as usual, stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly, stay classy.